0: Hello and welcome to The Innovation Quotient, a new podcast series where we examine innovation and discuss how it can fuel future progress. I'm Andrew Staples, Editorial Director of Initiatives at Economist Impact, an arm of The Economist Group which works with organizations to further their mission. This podcast is supported by Philip Morris International as part of an Economist Impact research program called The Innovation Quotient which examines how innovation could be fostered so as to drive socio-economic progress around the world. In this episode, we look at the relationship between innovation and financial inclusion. To help us understand the role of innovation in driving financial inclusion, my guests today are Hardika Shah and Patrick Saidu. Hardika is the founder and CEO of Kinara Capital, which offers fast and flexible loans without collateral to small business entrepreneurs in India. Patrick is the CEO of Africa Fintech Network. AFN is a platform that unites Africa Fintech leaders, organizations and stakeholders through their country associations to exchange information and ideas, promote and support the creation of innovative technologies and deployment across and beyond Africa. Hardika, Patrick, welcome and thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you, Andy. Well, I'm I'm just going to ask you uh, each to briefly introduce yourselves. I mentioned your your title and your organization, but tell us what you do. And perhaps, Hardika, I'll come to you first.
1: So at Kinara Capital, our mission is to transform lives, livelihoods and local economies by providing unsecured business loans uh, to micro enterprises in India. Now, this is a really important mission for us because there are 70 million micro enterprises of which less than 10% have access to formal credit. And what we have built is a digital lending solution that provides loans in the range of three to $30,000 to these micro enterprises and manufacturing, trading and services to help them expand and grow their businesses. We have dispersed close to a billion dollars in, uh, in loans across 100,000 loans in India, and we are working to a goal of reaching 10 million customers over the next five years.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much. And I look forward to learning more about your activities as we go through uh, this conversation. And, and Patrick, to come to you.
2: So my name is Patrick saido Conte. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the African FinTech Network. The network was established slightly over five years ago, Our mission is to catalyze the digital economic development of Africa. Digitization of financial services has presented immense economic opportunities, opportunities for inclusion across the board, especially in underserved segments of the continent. So the mission here for the network is to facilitate collaboration, engagement of key ecosystem stakeholders. And we do that at country level. We advocate for fintech startups, innovative solutions in the space to actually collaborate, come together, engage, share experiences, understand their main pain points, because that's very key to ensure that services that are being provided meet the needs of consumers. And most importantly, we scale that up at international level, cross-border. So as I speak, we have 40 countries across Africa who are members of our network. So how do we harness those opportunities and meet the several challenges, binding constraints that are facing the ecosystem? It's what we are doing at the African FinTech Network thank you very much and and, you know
0: based on your experiences at these organizations what are some of the ways that you see financial inclusion as helping to drive socio-economic progress and just to i guess just before that what do we understand by financial inclusion what does that mean to you hardika
1: um financial inclusion is the ability for individuals businesses to have access, access to payments, access to credit, access to everything that furthers our lifestyle, healthcare, um, benefits, government benefits, right? And so to enable financial inclusion, we really need to look at the larger ecosystem that's around it to figure out where there are things that are broken and why are they broken and is there, are there ways to fix it so that we can bring about this access that's interoperable between people, businesses and services.
0: And in your case, in terms of providing access to capital, this is the way in which you're contributing to financial inclusion?
1: That's right. So access to capital is one of the biggest problems, right? In India, that number by IFC World Bank is sitting at around $400 billion in a credit gap for micro enterprises. So it's a very large problem that we need to solve for. And to solve for that problem, if you go underneath it to understand what is the underlying set of issues, one is very simply formality of the business. MSMEs, micro, small, medium enterprises, as we call them in India, MSMEs in India contribute 30% of the GDP, 45% of the industrial output. So there are key and required part of the economy. And as India looks to become a $5 trillion economy, the MSMEs have to come along for that to happen. So for the MSMEs to come along, access to credit is important. So we have to find a way to formalize them a little. We have to find ways to assess them differently than a bank would or in a more traditional manner. And we need the ability to do that at the last mile, which is where the customer lives and breathes in his local communities and not necessarily be disengaged from that to understand the context he's operating in as well.
0: Thank you for that. Patrick, the same question to you if we're thinking about uh, the network that you're CEO of. What does financial inclusion at the sort of basic level mean to you and your members? And and how are you looking to improve inclusion across Africa?
2: Yeah, just thinking in on what has said, um, the issue of access is very profound. But not only access per se, we emphasize or we advocate for access for all, regardless of where you are because most of our economies are similar. Speed of access is critical. Reliability of the access is very critical. Affordability of the product. Because one of the differentiating strategies of fintechs is the fact that their pricing is far cheaper than conventional traditional financial service. So affordability is very critical. And in recent times, especially since COVID, there is the issue of trust. Trust by consumers. Trust in digital products. Trust that their data is safe you know, data protection issues. So the issues of access, affordability, trust, are very profound when it comes to financial inclusion. And responding specifically to what we are doing in terms of facilitating financial inclusion, there's a lot that is needed in the space. Most critical is the issue of digital literacy, financial literacy. You know, how do you expect a 40, 50-year-old woman in a village that is a farmer with three children, never been to school, how can she use phone to check weather, for instance? How can she use phone to check market prices of our products in the next urban center? So literacy is very critical. Number two is issues about infrastructure, hard infrastructure in this case. Hard infrastructure, such as access to internet, is very important. Energy, electricity. So the list can go on and on.
0: Indeed. And Hardika, I'm sure that a lot of these issues are resonating with you as well. I wonder if I could sort of ask you for sort of an example of how you're using technology to reach people in rural areas and how you're dealing with some of these issues that Patrick was highlighting there, particularly around infrastructure and literacy and so on.
1: I completely agree with Patrick that you know a digital nation needs digital infrastructure. And to get there, a lot has to be built. And I think that today, as we sit here in 2024, India is at the forefront of building a large digital public infrastructure. And honestly, had that infrastructure not been built out over the last 10, 12, 15 years, a lot of the innovation that entrepreneurs like me are able to do could not, would not have been possible at the speed we are able to do it at. So fundamentally, I mean, just a quick synopsis of what India has been able to achieve. One was identity, because to Patrick's point, first question is, you know, who are you? Do I trust you as to you say who you say you are? We did that with giving um, essentially an identity, a biometric and a unique identifier. It's called Aadhaar. It's like a social security number, et cetera, elsewhere in the world. And that identity is now across 1.4 billion people. So everybody is a recognized individual in the country. The second part after the identity part is trust. Do I now have a way to access that identity in a secured data trusted manner and again when the infrastructure is a public infrastructure and is provided in a manner that is clean and clear and regulated it then provides a trust factor around it and then the third piece beyond that is now what can i do with this identity and data there we start saying payments we have a upr unified payment interface this is an ability for us to transact between individuals big payments one-on-one. There are a lot of private products in the world, like Apple Pay, etc. All of the payment systems in India run on this digital infrastructure, and it is free. And that has moved India from this offline economy to being online cashless economy, which is, you know, we have a long way to go. but. We are at 100 million transactions per month right now. So it's a huge movement that is happening in the country, which is required for this innovation to happen. Now, on top of that, the last bit is then what we come in and do, which is provide credit. So once I know who you are, once I can see the transactions, if you're a small if you're a trader, now I can verify who you are. I can verify what your income is could be, would be. And then based on that, I can actually provide you credit that is real based on the cash flows of the business and also the performance of the business. And that's the last mile of moving from essentially this universe of identity, data, trust and infrastructure on top.
0: Thank you very much, Ardeka And Patrick, I think it's really interesting to hear from Hardika there, but we're talking about India, one country, one government. Um, you mentioned at the outset that you have 40 members in your network alone. I can imagine some of the challenges beyond the infrastructure, that the literacy and so on. How are you trying to get over those challenges of, you know, vast different number of uh, regulatory regimes and policy imperatives and so on. H- how can you overcome that to get the type of scale that Hartika was describing?
2: Yeah, I, I can agree more. 54 countries in Africa, 54 different cultures, 54 different policies, 54 different regulations, 54 different border controls. So you can only imagine the Herculean challenges when it comes to how do we as a continent reap the benefits of digitalization of financial services and to bring in inclusion to a significant portion of Africans who are still, um, be it formally or informally, not part of the financial system. So really, that is at the heart of, of, of the network. So as I said, foremost at country level, domestically, we encourage the ecosystem to actually collaborate, to form partnerships, to work together, because that is very key. Minimum, they get to understand the pain points, they get to hear each other, they get to engage. And when it comes to the issue of policy and regulation, One way Africa has gained traction is a round table engagement where you have the regulators sitting with the tech startups, policymakers, government, for instance. Because what is evident in Africa is that innovative technological products in the space have far outpaced the pace at which policies and regulations have responded. So the engagement, the collaboration has helped to bridge that gap. At least policymakers can second guess, minimum what the technicians are doing. And that has facilitated things like innovation offices, sandboxes, you know, where policymakers get to test, get to learn and understand the products that have been rolled out or intended to be rolled out into the market. That that
0: point of collaboration is absolutely central and it comes up again and again in our research, in our key findings report, we stress the need for collaboration. And Hardika, to come back to you on collaboration, Patrick referenced the, the fintechs, the startups and the incumbents as well. What's your experience in terms of your activities and trying to bridge that that credit gap?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was listening to Patrick and thinking, gosh, you know, I know we are one point three four billion people and our problems are large, but then they're amplified with what you have in Africa and how do you build that digital public infrastructure on top of all of Africa? I mean you know, you've taken on something amazing, Patrick, I salute you for that. I think that we are beneficiaries of what has happened in India, where essentially, uh, you know, we are the only country in the world where we have we have built, you know, scaled APIs and open networks that do digitally transform uh, various things and integrate fintechs into the incumbents and, you know, into the banking space. And also, Essentially, I would say our regulator is a very forward thinking regulator beyond sandboxes, etc., they're pushing for innovation. I'll give you a simple example. So one of the things we talk about is bank statements, right? If we have a bank statement, we get a view of what your transactions are. If I get a view of what your transactions are, I can be confident in being able to lend to you or for any other uh, insurance or whatever else we're looking at as, as a product on top. Uh, The regulator is, is essentially pushing what is called the account aggregator network, where all banks will open up their bank statements on this network for the good of the economy, for unlocking credit access. And fintechs like us can go and access that information at the point of defining credit. So all of a sudden, with the support of the regulator, mind you, but you now have you know a communication channel that is opening up from a fintech to a bank to essentially enable last mile financial inclusion. And I, and I mean, here's the reason why. I mean, why would a bank do it? Really, it's private information or proprietary information for them. But the reason is, I think there's a real recognition, at least in India, that for last mile distribution, for credit and other services as well, you do need this partnership model. You need to recognize that banks have a role to play, but the non-banks that are sort of surrounding and have a more unique value proposition to the customer have an equal role to play and maybe a larger role to play in financial inclusion. And so bringing them together is the best answer for the consumer and for the country rather than keeping them separate. And that's what we are seeing in India in terms of collaboration, Um, you know, sometimes by the regulators, sometimes by just fintechs, we work with banks directly as well to essentially lend capital to, Excluded communities that we would want to bring into the financial inclusion forum.
0: Thank you very much. And and Patrick, I'm going to come back to you. You mentioned the sort of roundtables and bringing people together uh, and so on. Hardika there was just talking about, you know, fortuitously having a very forward thinking regulator in India. Where do you find some of the resistance? Where do you find policymakers or, or regulators pushing back and saying too fast, too much, too expensive? And then how do you overcome them?
2: Yeah, I just want to give another dimension to the sort of collaboration. You know, when you hear Hadika, India is huge, but they have succeeded in developing a good digital infrastructure. Like that's unique Identify is very important to know your customers, do your due diligence. So we learn, we benchmark from jurisdictions like India what they have attained and what they are achieving. So that is part of our engagement as well. We go outside the continent to look at best practices. When it comes to the pain points, the challenges, there are so many. and The issue of policy and regulation comes at the forefront. By default, most regulators take time to learn issues, take time to respond. So most of these regulators have been doing a lot of catching up. So what we have been doing is to encourage regulators to understand the essence of change of mindsets the essence of change of culture, the essence of embracing technology, that technology is here, is here to stay, there is no true way about it. You either innovate or understand it or you perish, putting it in simple terms. That is not to say there are hopes. We have what we call, you know, leaders, positive outliers in Africa, Hopes like in Nigeria, in Kenya, in South Africa, in Egypt, in Senegal, Mauritius, etc. They have sort of stood out of the pack in terms of the responsiveness, the agility of regulators to almost match what is happening in the digital finance space. So you see regulators in these jurisdictions, you know, working very closely with fintechs, working very closely with tech, getting to understand, in fact, in some of these jurisdictions, they champion the engagement, they house the engagement, so that they know exactly what is happening, so that they are better prepared, you know, to respond to what is needed in terms of the policies, the regulations that are needed to ensure that innovative technological services, products, meet the needs of consumers, have the trust of consumers, have the speed and reliability that they need to meet consumers across the world. Number two is the issue of talent. Africans can boast of a pool of smart technicians, a pool of smart individuals. You know, if you look in space of 10 years, African can boast of about 9 fintech unicorns, about 10 or 11 tech unicorns. It shows the pool of expertise that is growing in the continent. But the challenge we face is that this pool of talent is being eroded. The ability to retain this talent within the ecosystem has become a challenge because they are being attracted outside the country and attracted to jurisdictions like the US. So what do we do as an ecosystem? We we, 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 we advocate, we talk to policymakers for retention policies for these technicians so that they stay, they are encouraged, you know, so that remuneration is not just tied, for instance, to month end paid. How do you factor bonuses? in terms of the long-term performance of their entities. So these are the things we, we advocate for. These are the awareness we create that talents are key, but if the talents are not retained, it's going go to undermine the very existence of the sector over time, which is very, very central.
0: So one thing that we do with the innovation quotient, we look at socio-economic environment, we look at the policy and regulatory environment, uh, and we score those systems. So the whole point is is to see where there is best practice and where there are challenges and, and what we can do to improve um, that ecosystem so as to enable innovation for um, socio-economic progress. Hardico, I'm going to come back to you. Patrick there was talking about talent but previously he was also talking about you know the fundamental need for digital literacy and so on you're talking about micro and small and medium-sized enterprises as well this must be an issue that you come up against and and how do you bridge that gap there
1: well i would say that that issue most definitely existed over a decade ago and it existed for a variety of reasons right access to smartphones was limited access to data was uh, expensive so hence very limited and therefore the ability to navigate a smartphone and navigate this, you know, sort of digital burst that we have seen was just not there. All of that in the last several years in India has completely dissipated. We have gone from what was seen as a very metro millennial male use of, of smartphones and data for, you know, whether it's for entertainment or whether it's for transacting or whatever it was to a very uh, vernacular, Video and essentially the expansion of that information or access to that information across the board. We have over a billion smartphones in this country. So that part has been organically solved for, I would say. Again, that's not to say we don't need to educate I, I and we see that. We run a Grow with Kinara series for our entrepreneurs, for our customers to help them understand what are some things they can think about in terms of marketing techniques or new technologies or, you know, access to government programs, etc. Uh, Patrick talked a little bit about, you know, the trust factor in digital and, and we have had as, you, as anything new, as you can imagine, there will always be um, extreme examples of people using that for their own purposes. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's, it's essentially people defrauding others. And so we have to have that education. The regulator has the education, you know, all of us participate from an ecosystem perspective to make sure that the consumer is aware and is learning through the process. You know, while all of us are getting used to digital, the importance of vernacular is terribly, terribly built into the solution for it to work, right? Because, and what I mean by that is the importance of local language information sharing and, and apps and engagement with, in local language is a key element to bring people into the fore, uh, whether it be for digital inclusion or for financial inclusion.
0: Thank you very much. I'm going to change gears a little bit and sort of look forward. Um, we've been hearing some excellent success stories and growth and development and progress but looking ahead patrick for you the africa fintech network for example what are some of your core priorities what do you want to achieve within let's say a two three five year time frame
2: so one of our priority is how do we bring regulators together under fintechs to understand better the need for harmonization you know what we call a fintech passport so if you're approved by one regulator in Kenya, for instance. Almost invariably, you can operate in Nigeria, you can operate in Egypt, you can operate in South Africa. That creates an enabling platform for policies and regulations to be harmonized so that you see Africa as a country, not a continent. That's very, very important. Number two, amongst the issue of collaboration. We continue to emphasize the role of government in Africa because the extent of unpredictability of policies and regulations is really, really very significant, you know, across some of the countries, the the instability in some jurisdictions is affecting what is happening in the ecosystem. So now we are agitating for that involvement at the top to ensure that government providers enabling policy and regulatory environment to ensure stability economically, socially, that things are predictable. Because this ecosystem will not thrive well. Investors, both locally, domestically, internationally, will not be attracted if the environment is not predictable. And thirdly, it's the important issue of access to finance, access to capital. Take the top fintech unicorns in Africa. Over 80% of the balance sheet, you look at the makeup of the capital. These are funding coming from overseas. Yes, it's good, good for the ecosystem, good to provide access to capital. But the issue is, is that in the best long-term interest of the continent? Probably no. You know, so now we are pushing very hard for what we call homegrown capital. We're encouraging local investors, local local entrepreneurs to actually invest in fintechs. If you look at the profile of Africa's top richest men or richest individuals, a significant portion, let's say 80% of their investments is in manufacturing, in hard metals, in oil, in telcos, little in technology. So what we are now doing is to create that awareness that africans must invest africans entrepreneurs investors must invest in technology that technology is the future so these are the main pain points because access to capital to finance remains a challenge especially in recent times given global economic conditions funding over the last one two years has been has scaled down significantly so we are encouraging homegrown capital locally to support the continued existence on a sustainable basis of the fintech sector thank you very much
0: actually just on that point of of gender you were talking about the richest men and investors and so on. Let's take it down to the other sort of side of the story there, Hardika, and thinking about when we think about financial inclusion, we should also be thinking about gender inclusion. And I wonder about the sort of profile of the people that you're lending to as well, and, and, and to what extent are those loans designed to deal with social uh, challenges and issues as well?
1: Well, thank you so much for that question. I was uh... Uh, reflecting on how, when we think of challenges, that is by far one of our biggest challenge. And let me explain what I mean by that. So we talked about 70 million micro enterprises. Now, less than 10% are women owned. It's not that women are not owning businesses or operating businesses. It's just that they're not formal enough and they don't have access to credit at the same in the same manner. We have a program, we call it Har Vikas. Vikas means progress. And so her progress. And the idea is to get more women access to capital. And we do it in a couple of different ways. One is we just, you know, we enable that by giving them a lower rate of interest so that they are motivated to actually use that capital to expand their business and have more to put into their business. We then run a support program around that with So networking with meeting other women entrepreneurs, both as a way for them to get inspired and be the inspiration source. And lastly, the most important element of it is that we do it through our data science models so that our data science models are blind, whether you're male or female. So your ability to get access to that capital is equal. And that is what this is about. This is about democratizing capital credit for anyone who is in whatever form or format excluded from the formal economy. Now. If I take that statistic one step further, you know, the loans we have done, we've done about 100,000 loans. We have been able to create over a quarter of a million jobs through the loans we have done. And 40% of those jobs go to women. So there is a second level of impact. And hopefully maybe some of those women might say, you know what, I might want to be a business entrepreneur tomorrow. And then we find a path. So we have a program for those women who have who want to start up their businesses as well, to be able to give them startup capital, small startup capital that they can just use to start their business as well, because that is a, a huge systemic issue. So in essence, we are creating a ripple effect that hopefully brings more women into the in, into it. And as we all know, when women have access to capital, they, their utilization is, um, is more towards their families, health care, elder care, and, and not just, you know, for other things. One last point I want to make as to why this is important for us to do. One point is at the country level. You know, we talk about a $5 trillion economy. We can't leave 50% of the population behind if you're going to talk about that. But more importantly, even in our portfolio, when I split, you know, the people who are unable to pay, women are less, 50% less in terms of defaulting on their loans than men. So there is there is even a business reason for us to do it, if there isn't a social reason, if, if social reason isn't enough. It should be more than enough, but there is even a business reason to do this and to bring this inclusion of women into you know into a formal economy.
2: Patrick, you just know, on, on that point, yeah, please go, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add on that because that's a major issue here in, in, in Africa. You know, women generally in some cultures... The girl child is denied access to school. They are not allowed to go to school. Look at women in tech that are managing or owning tech startups generally. There are few in Africa. So there's a lot of initiative happening here in the continent. But what we do specifically as part of the advocacy work we do is to actually, you know, blow the trumpet loud that these cultural issues need to be changed. You know, encouraging women themselves to challenge themselves that these things are doable because the gap is huge. So it's huge. It's a huge challenge in Africa. It is. It is a global issue. It is a global So that is why there is need for partnership of key stakeholders, governments, private sectors, NGOs. There has to be a deliberate policy of changing the narrative.
0: We are at about time. I think we could continue this fascinating discussion. And I do hope that you will both engage with the innovation quotient. There's plenty of really good analysis in there at the country, regional level, to help people benchmark and to see where we are and where other examples of of best practice are. And I think we uncovered a lot of that uh, today on this call. So um, I'm going to uh, draw this conversation to a close and thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you, Patrick. Lovely to meet you both.
2: Yes. Thank you, Heidi. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Innovation Quotient. For more information about the Innovation Quotient, please visit economistimpact.com forward slash innovation hyphen quotient.